If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ads. In manufacturing, you need to automate intelligently to compete effectively, but not all automation solutions are created equally. AGVs and AMRs driven by Bluebotics Ant technology offer robust, accurate performance and native interoperability because your material handling can be smarter. Visit antdriven.com. That's antdriven.com to learn more. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. Hey there, welcome to the podcast. John here, Mac is off for a couple of days. This week's episode is a really special one, recorded at this year's Docky Book Festival. It's called Searching for America with David Brooks, New York Times most read columnist and a man regarded as the most influential commentator in the US. Now, Mac was telling me he's been a huge fan of David Brooks for years. In actual fact, he was telling me that it was like him meeting Elvis. And I can see why, actually, because David's take on the world is always captivating, elegant, wise. And this particular chat is surprisingly deep, personal and intimate. And from my perspective, I have to say, I not only found it fascinating, but insightful and thoughtful and the kind of conversation that stays with you for a long time afterwards. And they cover a lot of ground in this conversation, from politics to religion, to ethics, to morality, to culture, why Americans think the way they do, and what we can learn about human dignity and the simple act of kindness. It runs a little longer than usual, but believe me, it's well worth it. So let's get into it. Mac begins with a question to David about the latest from Donald Trump. David Brooks, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, David, as I was saying, I've been a bit of a fanboy over the, over the years, but and I've devoured the journalism, the, the, the books, and I've seen this sort of progression in your writing. We're going to talk about, by the way, this extraordinary book, The Second Mountain, A Quest for a Moral Life. But before I talk to you about the moral life, I want to talk to you about a man who sums up morality, Mr. Donald Trump. <laughs> I was watching you on PBS the other day, the other morning. What, are you, what does Trump's indictment tell us? Yeah, in 2015, I wrote a book about humility. I, was, I wanted to, we fought over the cover, I wanted it to be Humility by David Brooks and Big Better. <laughs> and so it, it came out in 2015, and then Donald Trump ran in 2016. And I thought, well, that worked. That was fine. And so Trump continues to be Trump. And I must say, I continue to underestimate his depravity. Uh, seven years later, I continue to be surprised. And so I was surprised if anybody, there's no reason you should have seen the first presidential debate with Joe Biden, where he was just a barbarian. I was surprised how much he actually did try to overthrow the government on January 6th. I was surprised how serious uh, the documents he purloined really are. And I decided I'm going to be naive, and that's the price I'm willing to pay for being mentally independent of that guy. And so ultimately what Trump stands for, I think, 
is a couple ideas. The first is that people are fundamentally selfish, and you might as well grab what you can when you can. Yeah. And second, that every institution that we have is fundamentally corrupt all the way down, and therefore everything is illegitimate. And I think both those propositions are completely false. Uh, that people, while frail, are fundamentally seek to be good, and that institutions, while faltering, are worthy of our respect. And so we not only have a political war, but we have a cultural war between the forces of some sort of moral vision and not the forces of nihilism. And so he, he represents that. And then he just represents a boy to me, a cruel boy. Yeah. And, you know, the best analysis, why is he keeping these documents? I read today a psychologist saying it's a transference object. And a transference object is a teddy bear that three-year-olds have. And they really take their teddy bear really seriously. If you try to take it away... Yeah, to freak out. And so he's a guy who's an episodic man. He has no past, he has no future. He only has the conflict of that moment. And so to me, to keep his world coherent, he has to have these boxes. And so he keeps the boxes to provide the exoskeleton of a narrative that he can call his life. And he, that's why he wasn't going to give them up. So that's Trump. But then you've got the Republican Party. And what did the reaction of the Republican Party to the indictment tell you about? Well, it was shocking, of course, but non-shocking. <laughs> because this is the 937th time we thought this will be the time that they bring him down. But I guess, in defense, my general view is that Trump is the wrong answer to the right question for a lot of people. And I have stopped trying to generalize about Trump voters. If you come to the States, I can introduce you to millions of them. And they all have their unique path, but they're not all illegitimate. So, for example, one story. I met a guy in South Dakota a couple years ago. He told me about the best day of his life. He was working in a plant that made the casements for refrigerators. When he was 70, he said, the best day of my life was 35 years ago. I was working as foreman at the plant, and they switched technologies. I could no longer work that technology, so they laid me off. And I thought I would just silently sweep away from no goodbyes. So he packs up his boxes in his office, opens the door, and there's a double line of 3,500 people, every single person in the plant. And he walks from this double line, which stretches from his office door to his car door in the parking lot, and they are applauding him all the way. And he said, that was the best day of my life. Every year since, I've had a worse job, with less money, with more insecurity, with more alienation from my community, and that guy Trump is a jackass, but I need him. Yeah. And so I, I just think I still try to keep sympathy for the people who vote for him for a reason. And I mean, again, what you're saying is that America is full of millions of people that are experiencing that moment that that guy did in Dakota. In some sense, uh, I just saw another study on, on belonging. We're, our society is economic. We can talk about this as economically doing pretty good, socially doing horribly. And so we're objectively better, but subjectively worse than we've ever been. And you've probably read we have high mental health problems, high suicide rates. But we also have the number of people who say they have no close personal friend has quadrupled. The number of people who do not have a romantic partner has increased by a third. The number of people who've broken up with a member of their immediate family is now up to a third. And so on statistic after statistic, if you ask teenagers, do you feel persistently hopeless and depressed? It used to be 19%, now it's 45%. Imagine feeling persistently hopeless and depressed. And then if you ask people, do you trust your neighbor? It used to be 60%, and now it's down to 30%, or 19% of millennials. So imagine going through life 
feeling persistently hopeful and depressed, and thinking the people around you are about to screw you. Yeah. That's just a hard circumstance. And if some guy says, I'm your retribution, there's going to be some weakness for that. And in terms of I'm your retribution, so that's exactly, it's not I'm your hope, it's not I'm your future, it's not I'm your optimism, it's I'm your getting even with people. Yeah, and this has been the biggest revelation for me, because I wrote a whole book on what's the American story, and in my view, the American story is a collective fantasy. We come to this world, at least the European settlers, they land there in the 17th century, they see abundance, they see trees stretching out for 3,000 miles, they see flocks of geese that took 45 minutes to take off, they were so gigantic, they used to shoot cannonballs into the flocks of geese to see if they could alter the flight. And they had two thoughts. One, that this was where God's plans for humanity would be completed, and two, they could get really rich in the process. And so it's, to me, America has always been about aspiration and hopefulness, sometimes in horribly destructive ways, but it's future orientation. And Donald Trump tells a story that we, the good folk of these people, yep. are under assault from the outside. And that's not our story, that's the Russian story. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, go to Russia and tell that story, but that's not our story. Just, uh, I, want to, I want to focus on that, the story of America, because your early work, Bobo's in Paradise, on Paradise Drive, was it captured this incredible optimism, a sort of thrusting, pioneering American, rugged individual, if you will. And, 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 and I see your later work, which we're going to talk about, I see you've changed profoundly in your acceptance of that being the model for America. So just let's go back to the David Brooks of the, of the 90s, the 2000s, the America you were writing about then, and then we can take it forward. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure my view of America has changed, my view of myself has changed. No, well, there's no doubt so, about <laughs> the book, and this is fascinating. Yeah, and so I grew up in a home, if anybody saw Fiddler on the Roof, you know how huggy and emotional Jewish families can be. I grew up in the other kind of Jewish family. <laughs> <laughs> And so we had love in the home, but we didn't express it. We had a phrase around our neighborhood, uh, think Yiddish, act British. Uh, and so the idea was like, no emotion, no emotion. Uh, and so I went into a solitary profession at seven. I read a book called Paddington the Bear, decided to become a writer, which is solitary. And then in high school, I wanted to date this woman named Bernice, and she didn't want to date me. And I remember thinking, she dated some other guy. I was like, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. Like, <laughs> And so those were my solitary, hyper-intellectual values. <laughs> and then when I was 18, the admissions officers at Columbia, Wesleyan and Brown, decided I should go to the University of Chicago. Uh, and that, too, is a hyper-intellectual place. The, my favorite saying about Chicago, it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> so, super-intellectual. And then I go to work at the New York Times, which is pretty heady, and I work at a, a show called uh, the PBS NewsHour, which is like a, one of our national public broadcasting news programs. And that too, it's not like, it's not, it's not the place to freeze my emotional ice age. Uh, at the NewsHour we have, um, our audience is, we call them seasoned. But uh, if seasoned. A, seasoned. Ooh, if, I like that one. If a 93-year-old lady comes up in the airport, I know what she's gonna say. <laughs> I don't watch your show, but my mother loves it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so that was the world I was in, inhabiting. And then life has a way of tenderizing you. And so kids are part of that. Divorce is part of that. Falling in love with another person is part of that. 
And so I think I've become more emotionally open and have written more personally and I'm now just a fountain of gushy emotion. Somebody told me Denmark, my two lifelong friends are sitting over there, Jeff and Pam, and they're witness to the uh, formerly uptight David turning into a a weeping, uh, soporific puddle of tissues. but I, so I forget where I was going, but anyway. No, no, keep uh, going, keep going. We got the I, box I, of Kleenex here, it's all I, good. I did have um, proof of this, that I have grown as a person. Because in twice in my life, I've, had, I've been interviewed by Oprah, uh, four years apart. You can't just drop that in. <laughs> you, I have not begun the name dropping that's about to happen. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, but at the end of the second taping, afterwards she came up to me and she said, David, I've never seen anybody change so much. You were so blocked before. Wow. And I took that as like a good sign that, that, you know, you can grow in middle age and you can grow radically. And so I think to the extent my writing has changed, it's a bit, I'm less the aloof journalist observing and more writing about, I'm working out my shit in public, basically. <laughs> but I mean, the book is, so give me the, the, the thesis, if we just touched on, on bits of it there, but the thesis of The Second Mountain. The, the thesis is the way you see life, and the way you see challenges, and the way you see this progression. Yeah, you know, the basic thesis of the second mountain is that we all leave school with some mountain we're gonna climb. And it's usually a mountain of career. We wanna build our identity, establish our impact on the world, and then something happens. Either you achieve success, which happened in my case, and it was weirdly unsatisfying, or you fail, or something happens that wasn't part of the original plan. You have cancer, you lose a child or something. And so you're down in the valley, and you're in a period of suffering. And in those periods of suffering, you can either get broken or broken open. And Paul Tillich, a 1950s theologian, said that moments of suffering interrupt your life and remind you you're not the person you thought you were. They carve through what you thought was the floor of the basement of your soul and reveal a cavity, and you carve through that floor and reveal a cavity below. And so in those moments, you realize there are hidden depths and hidden pains to yourself. Mm -hmm that you didn't know existed and you realize that some sort of moral and spiritual food is the only thing that's gonna fill those cavities. And so your motivations change and you seek to fill the cavities. And I learned that you can't, when you're in that valley, you can't pull yourself out of it. Somebody else has to reach down and pull you out. And so I had gone through this divorce. I was living alone in an apartment in Washington, D.C. And I did what any normal male idiot would do, which was I tried to work my way through the problem, just work. And so if you went to my apartment during those years, 10 years ago now, and I wasn't entertaining anybody, so if you went to my kitchen drawers where there should have been forks and spoons, there were post-it notes, and where there should have been plates, there were envelopes and stationery, because I was just working. And I realized I had weekday friends, like work friends, but weekend friends, my weekends in those days were voids. And so I was accepting any dinner invitation I could possibly get. And a couple invited me over named Kathy and David, and they had a kid in the D.C. public schools who had a friend whose mom had some drug issues and couldn't always feed him. And so they said, James, can come to our house. Uh, And then that kid had a friend, and that kid had a friend. And by the time I went to dinner there, there were 16 mattresses in the basement and 40 kids around the dinner table. Wow. And I walk in there, and I reach out, there's a kid there, and I reach out to shake his hand. And he says, we don't shake hands here. We're not allowed. We just hug here. 
Ooh. And I'm like not the huggiest guy on the face of the earth, so I think I've become a little more huggy. But, but basically, spending really six years until they really grew up and grew away with 40 kids who demanded complete emotional openness was salvific. And then other stuff happened, but those moments of suffering. And then you, once you come out, you come out changed. And in theory, you come out just wanting to find fulfillment. And it's not about external reward, it's about an inverse logic that uh, you have to surrender to gain something you really want, that self-sacrifice leads to fulfillment. You have to lose yourself to find yourself. So am I on the second mountain? Well, I wrote that book, it came out a few years ago, and I'm preaching the gospel of don't care about worldly success, and I'm checking my damn Amazon ranking every hour. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, and I'm so flying from I would New York say to here. Father Liam can help me out here. I'm still, I'm still in a liminal space here. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you wrote something a couple of years ago, really fascinated, touched me, about the difference between, you're writing about in the road on character, and you wrote the difference between CV virtues and eulogy virtues. Now, I buried my own dad in this church and gave the eulogy there, so I remember reading it after I gave the eulogy. You were saying that you, you looked at the types of traits that people talk about when they're given the eulogy for their dad or their friend or somebody close, and the types of traits we put on our CVs, and you contrast them. And I, I shared that with us. I thought it was an extraordinary way of looking at the world. Yeah, that book was called uh, The Road Character. It came out about seven or eight years ago. Yeah. And I learned in all humility that writing a book about character doesn't give you good character. Uh, and even reading a book on character doesn't give you good character. But buying a book on character does, in fact, give you good character. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's available at all booksellers. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was a book about a bunch of people who were pathetic at age 20 and amazing at age 70. Yeah. And I just wanted to know how they do it. And there were people like George Eliot, Samuel Johnson, Dorothy Day, Dwight Eisenhower, Francis Perkins, civil rights leader Philip Randolph. And I just wanted to know how they did it. And the distinction I made, which I really stole from a rabbi named Joseph Soloveitchik, he says there are two sides of our nature, Adam, what he called Adam 1 and Adam 2. And Adam 1 wants to be magnificent and wants to conquer the world. And Adam, too, was the Adam in Genesis who was just trying to tend to the Garden of Eden and just be humble. And so my modernization of that was that we have these resume virtues, the things that make us good at our job, and the eulogy virtues, the things they say about us after we're dead. Are we capable of great love, courage, honesty? And of course, most of us know the eulogy virtues are more important, and yet they're not talked about in school and they're not discussed. And so, in my view, we don't teach most of the most important things in life in school or to the young period. My next book is called How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. How do you make somebody feel seen, heard, and understood? Just a tremendously important skill, and we just don't teach it. And so we are raised in an atmosphere of not moral badness, but moral inarticulacy, that we just don't, often don't have the words to express how to do specific moral skills. And so those, the people in, those, in that book were transformed either by an event or by their own discipline. So, for example, there was a woman named Frances Perkins who grew up in 19... Well, she went to school in 1905 at a school called Mount Holyoke. And Mount Holyoke then had rules that we would probably not admit in our colleges and universities today. So one of the rules was, uh, freshmen shall bow in the presence of sophomores. 
Freshmen shall not speak when sophomores are present. Like, they were trying to teach humility, but it probably wouldn't fly. Uh, so she's sort of a do-gooder, but without focus in her life. And one day, I think in 1913 or 1917, she's having tea in Washington Square Park in Lower Manhattan, and she hears a commotion outside. They all rush out, and they look up, and they've seen the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, one of the worst fires in American history where hundreds of mostly women were trapped in a factory where they were sewing garments. And as on 9-11, she watches about 79 people decide they'd rather leap to their deaths than be burned to death. And that was her, her agency moment, the moment where she focuses. I called it a call within a call. She sort of knew what she was going to do, but this was going to be her calling. And so it was a, it was a moment of moral focusing and moral cohere, cohesion. And forever after, she would do anything, compromise with anybody, be ruthless if she had to, in the pursuit of worker safety and worker rights. And she went up to Albany to lobby the state legislature, and she was in her 20s, and so they wouldn't listen to a young woman. So she kept a note in her apartment building, a catalog or a notebook, and it was called Notes on the Male Mind. And she decided the men would not listen to a young woman, but they'd listen to their moms. So she dressed like an 80-year-old, tricolor hats, pearls, and they called her Mama Perkins. And she just became ruthlessly effective and eventually became the first woman in a U.S. presidential cabinet serving as Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor. And she, was, she stayed with him throughout his entire administration. And she, again, notes on the male mind, she understood that Roosevelt would lie to you to make you happy. And so when she would come into him with a decision he had to make, she would come with the four options on a piece of paper, and she would make him check off one of the options and make him sign it. Because she knew she needed to do that in order to make him commit, or else he'd just flip-flop. And so hers is a case of someone who was morally unfocused, then spent, there's a phrase in the Protestant world, a, a long obedience in the same direction. She spent the rest of her life focused on worker safety and worker rights. And it was that moral coherence that really I found so admirable in her and really all the characters. So, so when somebody is on their first mountain, if we go back, what sort of accolades are they respecting, yearning? And when they're on the second mountain, what are the similar accolades that they're yearning? What, what, what's the difference? What's the change? Let me tie that into work I'm doing now. I'm, I'm, my wife and I are going to teach a course at the University of Chicago, my alma mater, for people between age 50 and 70 on what to do with the rest of their life, as if we know. But I've talked to a lot of people who've gone through these courses, and what's humbling for me is, first, how many people are terrified of retirement? And so I met a guy who's a CEO, and he said, you know, I've cried twice in my life, once when my daughter got cancer, and once on the day I retired, because I thought my life was over, because my whole identity was wrapped up in my job. And Derek Jeffrey edits The Atlantic, um, and there's a very good writer named Derek Thompson who has a concept of workism. Workism. Workism, that work, work becomes central to our lives. And when you retire and leave that, you have to go through a transformation of values, so work is not central to your life anymore. And What's been striking to me when I, you, you enroll in these courses and they say to you, your resume, rip it up, it does not matter anymore. And what's striking to me is when I talk to people who are like five years out of retirement 
I say, how, your friends, your new friends, how often do you talk about your old jobs? And they say, never comes up. I don't know what a lot of the people were doing. And for those of us in the midst of career, it's humbling. It's like we may get to a point where all the stuff we're obsessed about just doesn't come up. It doesn't matter. Got doing something else. I've met people who are, you know, some do gardening, some write plays, some, you know, former CEOs doing like the local freelance journalism, just because that, that's what makes their heart sing. And so it's humbling to me that people really can change like this in dramatic ways. There was a famous study at Harvard called the Grant Study where they followed men from 1942 to their deaths, usually around 2010. And the one thing they learned, all the men at Harvard who, who took this study, this big longitudinal study, they entered the military. And the one thing they learned was they wanted to know why some men really thrived in the military in World War II and some men didn't. And it had nothing to do with IQ or physical courage or socioeconomic status. The number one correlation in thriving in the military was relationship with mother. With, that, with mother. That the men who had a close connection to their mom or dad knew how to accept love and give love to their men. But I tell this story because there's one of the guys in that study named Andrew Newman, who was a horrible perfectionist, sort of rigid doctrinaire. Nobody liked him in college. He had no friends. He was a perfectionist toward her daughters and really treated them badly. And then in one day, when he was about 56, he decided responsibility for the world's poor rests with the world's rich. So he moves to Sudan and starts working, helping farmers there. And then he starts teaching. And then he helps urban planning in, in Texas. And when they meet him at the end of his life, he's like giving them big hugs. He's a warm presence. One of the interviewers said, I was transfixed being around him. And they sent him the interview transcripts that he gave when he was in college, when he was 60. And he sent them back and he said, you sent me the wrong person's transcripts. I have not, these are not true, I'd never believed this, none of these stories are me. And they said, no, that was you. And so it's, the arc of a human life can really involve dramatic changes pretty much all the way through. And in, in, in the second mountain, you talk about necessity of having a committed life. That, you know, when you, when you decide that a lot of the stuff you believed in, a lot of the stuff you valued is not necessarily what you thought it was, and you have this epiphany moment of the valley, and then you figure things out, but then you move to commitments. Explain that to me. Yeah, well, I, this, this flew out of teaching a course at Yale. I only teach at schools I couldn't have gotten into. Uh, so, and I, my theory was for most of my students, over the course of the 15 years after graduation, they're going to make four big commitments, probably. Probably to a spouse and family, to a vocation, philosophy or faith, and a community. And so these are gigantic decisions. The success of your life depends on how well you make and keep these commitments. And to me, a commitment is falling in love with something and then building a structure around it for those moments when love falters. And so, like, Jews love God, but they keep kosher just in case. You need the structure. <laughs> and so, you know, I would talk to my students about these commitment makes because I do think we're promising. We make promises. And those promises transform us. They give us our identity. They give us our strength, a sense of meaning. And I will say the one my students didn't want to talk about, they all want to talk about jobs. They didn't want to talk about marriage. One of my students said, marriage is a box that'll come in the mail when I'm 35. No, you really should start thinking about it. It's a pretty important decision. And I, I would give them some advice, which was um, marriage is a 50-year conversation. Pick someone you want to talk to for the rest of your life. 
And I, I would say, like, uh, uh, love comes and goes, but admiration is permanent. Pick someone you admire. And then I gave them personality psychology, go with kindness, avoid neurosis. That's good, yeah, that's, that's fair enough. And so I would give them these maxims. I had a friend I told this to, and he said, what do you do if you're the neurotic one? <laughs> you don't recognize and I, it. I said, well, marry another neurotic. You'll make two people miserable and not four. So, um, <laughs> but but it, these commitments, then sometimes they fade away and make new commitments. And I would say, just to bring us a bit to the national, as much as I love talking about myself, it can happen to countries too, that you go through valleys. And I was in the middle of COVID, I wrote this up for The Atlantic. I read a book called The Politics of Disharmony by a guy named Samuel Huntington. And he said, I don't know if I believe in cycles of history, but if you look at American history, every 60 years or so, we seem to go through what he called a moral convulsion, a period when people are disgusted with established power, when a new moral generation comes on the scene, there's a new communications technology, everybody outside wants to tear things down. And he said it happened in the 1770s with the American Revolution. It happened in the 1830s uh, with the Jacksonian populist period. It happened in the 1890s with the Industrial Revolution. It happened in the 1960s. And he's writing in 1981. And he says, you know, I don't know if this 60-year cycle will obtain or pertain. But if it does, maybe sometime around 2020, America will have another moral convulsion. I said, pretty good, pretty good. And so I think we're on the edge of coming out of that. I mean, out of it. Yeah, and, but it is like those moments in the valley where everything seems hopeless and terrible. But people respond and cultures respond to the problems of the moment and adjust. And I, I do think America's been through a horrifically terrible time, along with a lot of other Western democracies, but is showing signs of the kind of second mountain renewal that is habitual. And so let's go back to that, that idea that there's... That there are big cycles in demography and history and economics and politics. And, you know, they could be 60, they could be 70 years. They're, they're kind of a, a lifetime, you know, more or less. Is this just something you, that he observed or is it something that he actually could say, look, this happened then and that happened then and, and we're in it now? Or you're just, you just think we're in it now? Yeah, well, the, the theory really goes back to this theory from Thomas Kuhn from the structure of scientific revolutions that there's a paradigm and the paradigm seems to be working. So for America between the war and let's say 2013, the paradigm was what is called neoliberal internationalism. Yeah. And I happen to be a defender of the paradigm, but it wasn't working for a lot of people. So it was the paradigm, it was the assumed that whether you were Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Mitt Romney or Richard Nixon, you were working within a paradigm. And it involved pretty free market, it involved free trade. It involved American leadership overseas. What we think of as leadership, other people call it oppression, but... Uh, <laughs> and it stopped working for a lot of people in 2013. And so we are, there's a large group of Americans who don't believe in American participation abroad. Donald Trump and to some degree, Barack Obama. There's a lot of people who think free trade was just horrific. There's a, a lot of people who think the, on left and right who think the liberal order was Horrific. There's a lot of people in here, I would include myself, who think the meritocratic ruling class that now runs America is, I won't say horrific, but overly insular, snobbish, and destructive of national cohesion. And so Something they... Almost Trumpian. Yeah, so that when the paradigm doesn't work, people start chopping it up. So, so yeah, so, so because this is fascinating. You know, societies renew themselves, and they reach a, they reach a certain stage, they say, 
we're not into that anymore. And you have a, you can have a revolution, you can have change, and then you get renewal. What do you think that American renewal will look like if we're going through this period? Because it's very hard. So when you're in the middle of it, you think chaos, you think catastrophe. But if you see it in the big cycle, you say, well, this is almost a birth. This is a birthing process of something new. Yeah, it's easier for me to go back and see what happened the last time. <laughs> um, but maybe I'll ex extrapolate to the future. Like, if you go back to American high school yearbooks in 1965, all the guys have crew cuts. In 68, half crew cuts, half have long hair. By 75, they all have long hair. And that is symptomatic of a shift in culture, the rise of feminism, a rise of a romantic ethos, a rise of a very individualistic ethos. And so we went from a culture that was that was self-effacing, I'm no better than anybody else, but nobody's better than me, to a culture that says, hey, look at me. And we have these things called narcissism tests. They ask people, do you agree with this statement? Uh, somebody should write a book about me because I'm so extraordinary. I find it easy to manipulate people. I love to look at myself in the mirror. And the median narcissism score went up by like 40% in a few years. So we became much more individualistic. And in my view, if you look at the transition we're in the middle of, much less individualistic. Life is much less about how do I self-actualize. It's much more who's my group. And it happens that we're having big fights about how to structure the new groupishness of society. But almost everybody is like, here's my group. And it could be a partisan group, it could be an ethnic group, it could be a regional group, but people are much more collective than they were. Second, I do think we've taken a painful and extremely partial step forward toward acknowledging the country we are, where I don't think it's quite fair to, to say that whites will be a minority, but there will be no majority. And that there will be much more ethnic fluidity between the races than we now think. And so we're beginning to encounter a world that just looks very different. I just finished a long story on artificial intelligence, and I quoted probably 20,000 AI experts out in the valley, and there was not a single person named Jones or Smith they had Nigerian names, Chinese names, Pakistani names, but there was no like easy to spell name for me. <laughs> and so that's a big transition we're going through. And then I do think, and this is be the hardest one, I think one of the core problems with a lot of Western democracies is that the highly educated 20% go off to fine university, marry somebody else from another fine university, invest awesome amounts in their kids. Those kids then go off to fine universities, marry another person, and then they move to a very few cities and we have an, a meritocratic inherited Brahmin class which controls the media, increasingly controls finance, increasingly controls corporations, and increasingly controls political power. And a lot of people in the non-20% say, screw that, I hate those people. And I think that's the primary driver of why Viktor Orban is there, why Marine Le Pen is there, why Boris Johnson was there, and why Donald Trump is there. So it's this, it's this idea, I think somebody said about uh, Trump. Somebody's trying to explain Trump, uh, an American journalist, I can't remember who it was, and uh, she was saying that uh, her dad was a blue-collar worker, and uh, she said her dad voted for Trump. She said, what you don't understand is blue-collar workers, working-class people in America, they don't hate rich people, they hate professionals. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about. Why do they hate us in the media? We, we embody. And to be fair, uh, as much as I disagree and as much as I'm proud of being in the media. You know, when I started journalism, I was a police reporter in Chicago, and I worked with men and women who didn't go to college. Now, 
it's not only going to college, you have to go to the right college. So if you stood in the New York Times newsroom and swung an ax, you did eight people who were editors of the Harvard Crimson at one point, which would be a good idea probably. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, just kidding, just kidding. But you also say, off the record there. But you also say in the book that you are, I mean, we are in the, the city of Edmund Burke, right? Maybe not Dorky, but, but Dublin, and you, you self-identify as a Burkean conservative. Explain that to me and what it is and what it isn't. Yeah. Uh, first, my two heroes, uh, one is Alexander Hamilton, who believed in social mobility. And Alexander Hamilton, as you meant, it was a Puerto Rican hip-hop star from upper Manhattan. Uh, <laughs> and then the other, my other hero is Edmund Burke. And Burke, I went, in college, I was assigned Reflections on the Revolution in France. And I hated it. I was a lefty revolutionary then. I, th I wrote a paper called They Weren't All Smart Back Then. It was like, I just thought he was an idiot. Like, we, we have this idea of just prejudices. We shouldn't think for ourselves. We shouldn't have revolutions. And I hated it. And the phrase that leapt out to me from Burke was epistemological modesty. The idea of the world is really complicated. We ought to be cautious about what we can know. I got out of college. I'm a reporter. I'm covering housing projects in Chicago. And they had been built with the best of intentions to clear away old slums and put up these high rises. But when they cleared away all the slums, they cleared away all the social reinforcements, all the arrangements people had made to make life decent. And when they put up the high rises, the gangs took over immediately, and they were horrific places. They've since been torn down. And I thought, wow, epistemological modesty. Maybe that guy Burke knew something. And I think it's not insignificant that he, his first book was on aesthetics, because he, we have the wars of religion, and then we have two reactions to it. The first reaction, which I associate with France, is the rationalist reaction. We can't have this savage bloodletting over religion. We need to ground ourselves on reason. And every, we, we get Descartes, we get Condorcet, we get Voltaire. And then the other branch, which I associate with Ireland and Scotland, says, no, don't trust reason. Reason is, as David Hume said, reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions. You should trust your sentiments. And so that's Edmund Burke, that's Adam Smith, yeah. that's David Hume. And to me, that's just a better understanding of human nature. That if you try to construct a society out of abstract, rational universals, you'll end up creating dystopia. But if you built your society on things that you love and are worthy of love, and you improve those things incrementally but continually, you will have slow, steady progress toward a better society. And to me, Burke stands for that sense. He was a, a deeply sentimental writer. And I think his prose just so beautifully arouses emotion and eloquence, as you know, those who do not look to the past will never look to the future. And so that sense of historical continuity and rootedness. You know, I come here because I was saying I like to hike, and this is my third trip to Ireland in a year, which has made it a good year. But I told a friend, um, I like my nature to be moody and historical. And you guys have that in spades. <laughs> we have that in spades. Uh, what, would, what do you think Burke would think of the world now and the way? So if we come back to your, the idea that so there is a big, there's a combustion occurring in the United States. What do you think Burke would think of the way in which we're going about discarding or embracing? Yeah, I think he would say, well, what are the core strengths here? You know, he was not averse to a revolution. He was averse to the French Revolution because they tried to rip everything up. 
He supported, obviously, the American Revolution because he thought it was a return to first principles. And so, you know, our first principles are still Lincoln and still enshrined in the Declaration and then in the Gettysburg Address that all human beings are created equal. And I think if, to get to bring it to the modern day, just the instincts of some people. So we, we cover Joe Biden these days. And you can think this or that about Joe Biden. But one thing for sure that has been instilled in him is the idea that all of democracy should be based on the idea of the infinite dignity of each human being. So one story that Biden tells, when his dad, this was during the Depression, his dad was unemployed, finally got a job as a car dealer, and they had Christmas dinner at a gym, and there was a track around the top, and they were dancing on the floor. And so they were all dancing after the dinner, and the owner of the dealership pulled out a big bag of silver dollars, and his Christmas bonus was to dump the silver dollars from the running track down onto the floor and have all his employees scramble around picking them up. And Biden's dad, who needed a job, said, we're out. You just don't treat people that way. And I think that concept of human dignity... Uh, I'm going to tell one more story since we're in a church. But I think it's, it's become elemental. It's elemental to my next book. I had this... I ran, run this thing called The Weavers, which is a... We try to take people who are really hyper-local building community and we try to lift up their stories. So I'm in Waco, Texas, and we, we go to these towns and we say, who's trusted here? Who's building this community? And so I was introduced to a lady named LaRue Dorsey. And I had breakfast in a diner with LaRue Dorsey. She's a 93-year-old black lady who presented herself to me as a Marine drill sergeant. She, was, she said, I was a tough disciplinarian when I was a teacher. I loved my students enough to discipline them. And I was a little intimidated by her. A mutual friend, a guy named Jimmy Durrell, comes in. And Jimmy's a pastor, and the homeless wouldn't come to his church, so he built a church under the highway overpass where the homeless lived called Church Under the Bridge. He has a homeless shelter affixed to his house. He supplies food. He's just a beautiful guy in his 60s, big teddy bearish guy. He walks up to Mrs. Dorsey, and he grabs her by the shoulders, and he shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. <laughs> and he says to her, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best. I love you, I love you. And the strict, stern disciplinarian turns into this bright nine-year-old, eye-shining girl. And I thought, that's how you pay attention to people. And in some sense, he, he paid attention to her better than I did. In some sense, he's known her for a long time. He's got a big personality, I don't. But the, the thing I learned is a little deeper than that. That because he's a pastor, when he sees somebody, anybody, he's seeing someone made in the image of God. He's looking a little into the face of God. He's trying to see them the way Jesus would see someone with the eyes of love toward the marginalized. And I remember thinking, I don't care if you're Christian or not Christian, atheist, whatever. Seeing each human being with that level of reverence and respect is the absolute prerequisite for treating people well. And that democracy is sort of based on that. When Vladimir Putin sends troops into the meat grinder, that's not human dignity. When China does facial recognition and reduces individuals to mass, that's not human dignity. And that's still fundamentally at the root of a lot of our systems of government in one form or another. And I, I would imagine Rick would want to say, okay, let's start with human dignity. How do we build around that? Thank you. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax with their 20 plus sports activities, wellness programs. You can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. I, 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 I want to pick up on, on, on you mentioned uh, religion. Uh, you started describing your family. In the book, you have a, a, a chapter called, I think it's called, a, new, a very unusual thing happened, or unusual turn of events. And uh, it's about your conversion from Judaism to Christianity, which is not a, a normal, it's an unusual conversion. Explain to me why you moved towards Christianity. It did happen to the apostles, to be fair. Well, that's true, actually. That's fairly true. Yeah. <laughs> But it was, it was kind of a pain of death. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have moved very quickly if I was them too. Yeah. So I, I grew up in a Jewish home, and, but I went to um, a Christian school, and I went to a Christian summer camp, which was really the formative institution of my childhood. And so I grew up with these two stories, the Exodus story and the Jesus story. And I found them both beautiful stories, but I didn't really believe in God. So they were sources of wisdom. And I grew up... Jewish and remained Jewish and remained, in my mind, more Jewish than ever before. And I came across a poem or a statement by a guy named something right, a writer in the 50s who said, I don't speak Hebrew, I don't know much about Jewish history, but I'm a Jew to the core of my bones. And I think there are certain things, you know, we all owe our ancestors a lot. And I think one of the things Jews owe our ancestors is obviously a sense of peoplehood, obviously a dedication to education. But to me, the most ballsy thing about Judaism is that here were a group of small people off in the frontier somewhere who thought God had centered human history around them. And with that came a sense of intense moral obligation to a covenant that you have to lead a life that is in service to that covenant. And there's the immense pressure to do that. And so I think I've inherited that from the thousands of years of Jewish history. About 15 years ago, my perception of reality spilled outside the categories I had in my head for it, which is to say there was more spiritual stuff there. There was more of a transcendent order to the universe. I became 
entranced by radically good people. I wrote about one in Dorothy Day and wrote character. I had weird encounters. If anybody's been to Penn Station in New York, it was, now it's nice, but it used to be tremendously ugly and was the second ugliest spot on the face of the earth. The ugliest was the subway station next to Penn Station <laughs> in New York. And I was in this dreadfully ugly spot and I just had this sensation that there are eternal souls in all the people around me. And if you start with a belief in a human soul, it's very quickly to get to a sense of grace, that there's an underlying force of love in the world, that we're not just meaningless atoms in a meaningless universe. And so that started me off, like, where does this lead me? And it was a long, slow process. I, I wish there was a moment where Jesus walked through the wall and said, follow me, but it didn't happen. But it turns out when you're spiritually seeking, Christians especially send you books. And so within a, about a month, I had about this, 600 this books sent at me. 350 of which were different copies of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, a good Irish writer. Yeah. Um, and when faith came to me, it came to me in that form. And to be honest, there are still days really when it comes and goes. A lot of days where the resurrection was like, really? But the one thing that doesn't go away for me is the radicalism of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes strike me as, like somebody said, just a transcendent miracle coming down. And so my Jesus is a Jew. Uh, he's not a blonde guy with his fingers in the air like Florentine paper paintings. If, if you look at where he came from in his time, it was a time of revolution. The revolutions tended to emanate from Galilee. And if you were from there, you were mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And he enters the world of power structures, and he upsets them all, turns them all over. And so that Jesus is just total badass. And so I associate with him, and I, I try to tell my friends, I, I feel like religiously bisexual. I'm Jewish, but I'm Christian. <laughs> um, um, but apparently you can be, we can be not you're, polar you're, you're and gender, bi, but bi religion. You're bi-curious, David. You're bi-curious. No, it's fair. You, bi -curious. Can't, you can't be both. It's fair. But I, I do feel that the Judaism and the Christianity, I feel them both much stronger. And the book ends with this call to community. And it's a total transformation of your personality and this journey you've gone through. And in the United States, we started with Donald Trump, kind of the antithesis of everything we're talking about now. But as you said, the people who vote for Donald Trump have very, you said you know, that the wrong answer to the right question. And you focus towards the end of the book on community and building volunteers and community. Explain that to me and how it might work. Yeah, this was partly, this project Weave was based on the idea that social fragmentation and loneliness really is the core problem. But it's being solved at the local level in towns all across the country. So we take people who are leading selfless lives of communal life. And we just say, the theory of change was social change happens when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us fall. And so, in our travels around the country, I ran into a guy named Pancho Arguiles, who lives in Houston, who takes undocumented workers who's been paralyzed in construction accidents, and he gives them diapers and catheters and wheelchairs so they can lead lives of dignity. He turns them into social workers, so you'll be in Houston and 25 Hispanic guys in wheelchairs will roll into your neighborhood to help solve your neighborhood's problems. Ran into a woman in Florida who was helping escort kids after school across the street. And we asked her, do you ever have time to volunteer in your community? And she said, no, I have no time. 
said, are you, are you getting paid for this? She said, no. And, I, and then we said, well, what are you doing after this? And she said, well, on Thursdays, I take food to the hospital, so they'll have some nice food. Do you have time to volunteer in your community? No, I have absolutely no time to volunteer. <laughs> like, it wasn't volunteering, it was just neighboring. <laughs> and so we tried to lift up those stories. And I tried to create an intellectual manifesto that would embody what those, what those human beings personify. And that's how that ended. And it was a belief that we've sort of overdone it with the individualism. I mean, if you look at the individualism of my youth, like if you look at all the music, Freebird, Ramblin' Man, Born to Run, like, that's my music. But we've sort of overdone it. We've overshot the mark. And we needed to go through that period. And now we need to find ways to bond. And I don't know if it's a problem here, frankly, because we have all this social dislocation we don't have pub culture. Uh, we don't have a lot of the town communal culture. Last time I was here, I got a flat because apparently you guys think a, what should be a two-lane road is actually a one-lane road. <laughs> yeah. And I hit a stone. <laughs> and I literally had people coming, stopping, and they were like, this shows how insufferable I've come. When we got the flat tire, my first instinct was, who do I call? And then. 15 seconds later, two young Irish women, 21, 23, said, oh, we'll fix it for you. And I felt so humiliated because they're working and then I'm standing here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Sitting there taking notes for your next article. Yeah, right, yeah. But it, it was um, uh, just looking around pub culture, it feels different than even bar culture in It America. is different. It is different. David, you, halfway through the chat, you were talking about it, somebody who saw a questionnaire that they signed when they were a younger man. And they said, I don't recognize that dude. What bits of the early David Brooks are still knocking around? And what bits do you recognize? Uh, well, I'm, I came across my first story when I wrote when I was in first grade. And it was a, a parody of the Bronx for being a pretty bucolic place. So it was an attempt at humor. So I still, every New York Jewish boy wants to be a comedian at some level. It's funny, the things you can't go away. I fall for a New York Mets, a baseball team which I started falling for at eight. And you want to renounce it because they do not do very well, but you can't. There's also a sense, someone wrote, a guy named uh, Michael Oakshot wrote that it takes three generations to make a career. And so my grandfather, who really raised me, was loved writing. He was a lawyer, but he, he wrote briefs. And every afternoon, he would write a letter to the editor of the New York Times to try to get it in. And when I got the job as a columnist there, I, he was dead then. But I wish I could have told him that his grandson had gotten a job at the New York Times. And those are the immigrant ambitions that still, I think, pass through him to my parents, to me, hopefully to my kids. And just those immigrant ambitions, how consistent are they with this community idea? You know, because a lot of the... The, the first book is, again, about ambitions and driving forward and achieving, etc. And the second mountain is about, okay, we have done that, now we've got to do something else. How do you marry all that? I, I guess I would think those immigrant ambitions are about time, about lineage, and this is Edmund Burke, too. The, my first sense of the sacred happens in old places. And whether you're faithful or not, when you go to Chart, there's just something spiritual happening there. And there's something about being on an old battlefield, the echoes in the, we can call the mystic chords of memory, that somehow contact with things across historical time 
and the sense that we're part of a progression that stretches back centuries. I once, my wife is furious when I asked this question, but it worked out. I just said to a dinner party, how do your ancestors show up in your life? And whether you're Irish or black or Chinese or whatever, your ancestors are showing up big time in your life. And they leave you legacies in the way you see the world. And so that reverence for the past and then that sense of continuity, it's, a, well, it's humbling to know how little you are. At, you're, a, you're an expression of history at the end of a long chain of choices that other people made. Ladies and gentlemen, David Brooks. I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Want to know what it takes to make a million bucks? Check out My First Million. Every week we dive into different business opportunities and explain how to pounce on them. From one-man online operations to brick-and-mortar strategies, we cover it all. So whether it's your first million followers or dollars, start getting inspired with My First Million wherever you get your podcasts.